Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badger Strip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected, Edgar Allan Poe. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 7. July 10. Spoke a brig from Rio, bound to Norfolk. Weather hazy, with a light baffling wind from eastward. Today, Hartman Rogers died, having been attacked on the 8th with spasms after drinking a glass of grog. This man was of the cook's party, and one upon whom Peters placed his main reliance. He told Augustus that he believed the mate had poisoned him, and that he expected, if he did not be on the lookout, his own turn would come shortly. There were now only himself, Jones, and the cook belonging to his own group. On the other side, there were five. He had spoken to Jones about taking the command from the mate, but the project having been coolly received, he had been deterred from pressing the matter any further, or from saying anything to the cook. It was well, as it happened, that he was so prudent, for in the afternoon the cook expressed his determination of siding with the mate, and went over formally to that party while Jones took an opportunity of quarreling with Peters, and hinted that he would let the mate know of the plan in agitation. There was now, evidently, no time to be lost, 
and Peters expressed his determination of attempting to take the vessel at all hazards, provided Augustus would lend him his aid. My friend at once assured him of his willingness to enter into any plan for that purpose, and, thinking the opportunity a favorable one, made known the fact of my being on board. At this the hybrid was not more astonished than delighted, as he had no reliance whatever upon Jones, whom he already considered as belonging to the party of the mate. They went below immediately, when Augustus called to me by name, and Peters and myself were soon made acquainted. It was agreed that we should attempt to retake the vessel upon the first good opportunity, leaving Jones altogether out of our consuls. In the event of success, we were to run the brig into the first port that offered, and deliver her up. The desertion of his party had frustrated Peter's design of going into the Pacific, an adventure which could not be accomplished without a crew, and he depended upon either getting acquitted upon trial, on the score of insanity, which he solemnly avowed had actuated him in lending his aid to the mutiny, or upon obtaining a pardon, if found guilty, through the representations of Augustus and myself. Our deliberations were interrupted for the present by the cry of, All hands take in sail! And Peters and Augustus ran up on deck. As usual, the crew were nearly all drunk, and before sail could be properly taken in, a violent squall laid the brig on her beam ends. By keeping her away, however, she righted, having shipped a great deal of water. Scarcely was everything secure, when another squall took the vessel, and immediately afterwards another, no damage being done. There was every appearance of a gale of wind, which, indeed, shortly came on with great fury, from the northward and westward. All was made as snug as possible, and we laid to, as usual, under a close-reefed foresail. As night drew on, the wind increased in violence, and with a remarkably heavy sea. Peters now came into the forecastle with Augustus, and we resumed our deliberations. We agreed that no opportunity could be more favorable than the present for carrying our designs into effect, as an attempt at such a moment would never be anticipated. As the brig was snugly laid to, there would be no necessity of maneuvering her until good weather, when, if we succeeded in our attempt, we might liberate one, or perhaps two of the men, to aid us in taking her into port. The main difficulty was the great disproportion in our forces. There were only three of us, and in the cabin there were nine. All the arms on board, too, were in their possession, with the exception of a pair of small pistols which Peters had concealed about his person, and the large seaman's knife which he always wore in the waistband of his pantaloons. From certain indications, too, such, for example, as there being no such things as an axe or handspike lying in their customary places, we began to fear that the mate had his suspicions, at least in regard to Peters, and that he would let slip no opportunity of getting rid of him. It was clear, indeed, that what we should determine to do could not be done too soon. Still, the odds were too much against us to allow of our proceeding without the greatest caution. Peters proposed that he should go up on deck and enter into conversation with the watch, Alan, when he would be able to throw him into the sea without trouble and without making any disturbance, by seizing a good opportunity. That Augustus and myself should then come up and endeavor to provide ourselves with some kind of weapons from the deck, and that we should then make a rush together and secure the companionway before any opposition could be offered. I objected to this, because I could not believe that the mate, who was a cunning fellow in all matters which did not affect his superstitious prejudices, would suffer himself to be so easily entrapped. The very fact of there being a watch on deck at all was sufficient proof that he was upon the alert, it not being usual except in vessels where discipline was most rigidly enforced to station a watch on deck when a vessel is lying to in a gale of wind. As I addressed myself principally, if not altogether, 
to persons who have never been to sea, it may be as well to state the exact condition of a vessel under such circumstances. Lying to, or, in sea parlance, laying to, is a measure resorted to for various purposes, and effected in various manners. In moderate weather, it is frequently done with a view of merely bringing the vessel to a standstill, to wait for another vessel or any similar object. If the vessel which lies to is under full sail, the maneuver is usually accomplished by throwing round some portion of her sails, so as to let the wind take them aback, when she becomes stationary. But, we are now speaking of laying to in a gale of wind. This is done when the wind is ahead, and too violent to admit of carrying sail without danger of capsizing, and sometimes even when the wind is fair, but the sea is too heavy for the vessel to be put before it. If a vessel is suffered to scud before the wind in a very heavy sea, much damage is usually done her by the shipping of water over her stern, and sometimes by the violent plunges she makes forward. This maneuver, then, is seldom resorted to in such case, unless through necessity. When the vessel is in a leaking condition, she is often put before the wind even in the heaviest seas, for, when lying to, her seams are sure to be greatly opened by her violent straining, and it is not so much the case when scudding. Often, too, it becomes necessary to scud a vessel, either when the blast is so exceedingly furious as to tear in pieces the sail which is employed with a view of bringing her head to the wind, or, when through the false modeling of the frame or other causes, this main object cannot be effected. Vessels in a gale of wind are laid to in different manners according to their peculiar construction. Some lie to best under a foresail, and this, I believe, is the sail most usually employed. Large square-rigged vessels have sails for the express purpose, called storm staysails. But the jib is occasionally employed by itself, sometimes the jib and foresail, or a double-reaped foresail, or not unfrequently the after-sails are made use of. Four topsails are very often found to answer the purpose better than any other species of sail. The grampus was generally laid to under a close-reaped foresail. When a vessel is to be laid to, her head is brought up to the wind just so nearly as to fill the sail under which she lies when hauled flat aft, that is, when brought diagonally across the vessel. This being done, the bows point within a few degrees of the direction from which the wind issues, and the windward bow, of course, receives the shock of the waves. In this situation, a good vessel will ride out a very heavy gale of wind without shipping a drop of water and without any further attention being requisite on the part of the crew. The helm is usually lashed down, but this is altogether unnecessary, except on account of the noise it makes when loose, for the rudder has no effect upon the vessel when lying to. Indeed, the helm had far better be left loose than lashed very fast, for the rudder is apt to be torn off by heavy seas, if there be no room for the helm to play. As long as the sail holds, a well-modeled vessel will maintain her situation and ride every sea as if instinct with life and reason. If the violence of the wind, however, should tear the sail into pieces, a feat which it requires a perfect hurricane to accomplish under ordinary circumstances, there is then eminent danger. The vessel falls off from the wind, and, coming broadside to the sea, is completely at its mercy. The only resource in this case is to put her quietly before the wind, letting her scud until some other sail can be set. Some vessels will lie to under no sail whatever, but such are not to be trusted at sea. But, to return from this digression, it had never been customary for the mate to have any watch on deck when lying to in a gale of wind, and the fact that he had now one, coupled with the circumstance of the missing axes and handspikes, fully convinced us that the crew were too well on the watch to be taken by surprise in the manner Peters had suggested. Something, however, was to be done, and that with as little delay as practicable, for there could be no doubt that a suspicion having been once entertained against Peters, he would be sacrificed upon the earliest opportunity, 
and one would certainly be either found or made upon the breaking of the gale. Augustus now suggested that if Peters could contrive to remove, under any pretext, the piece of chain cable which lay over the trap in the stateroom, we might possibly be able to come upon them unawares by means of the hold. But a little reflection convinced us that the vessel rolled and pitched too violently for any attempt of that nature. By good fortune, I at length hit upon the idea of working upon the superstitious terrors and guilty conscience of the mate. It will be remembered that one of the crew, Hartman Rogers, had died during the morning, having been attacked two days before with spasms after drinking some spirits and water. Peters had expressed to us his opinion that this man had been poisoned by the mate, and for this belief he had reasons, so he said, which were incontrovertible, but which he could not be prevailed upon to explain to us, the wayward refusal being only in keeping with the other points of his singular character. But whether or not he had any better grounds for suspecting the mate than we had ourselves, we were easily led to fall in with his suspicion, and determined to act accordingly. Rogers had died about eleven in the forenoon, in violent convulsions, and the corpse presented in a few minutes after death was one of the most horrid and loathsome spectacles I ever remember to have seen. The stomach was swollen immensely, like that of a man who had been drowned and laid under water for many weeks. The hands were in the same condition, while the face was shrunken, shriveled, and of a chalky whiteness, except were relieved by two or three glaring red blotches like those occasioned by the Asseverus, one of those blotches extending diagonally across the face, completely covering up an eye as if with a band of red velvet. In this disgusting condition, the body had been brought up from the cabin at noon to be thrown overboard, when the mate getting a glimpse of it, for he now saw it for the first time, and being either touched with remorse for his crime, or struck with terror at so horrible a sight, ordered the men to sew the body up in his hammock, and allow it the usual rites of sea burial. Having given these directions, he went below, as if to avoid any further sight of his victim. While preparations were making to obey his orders, the gale came on with great fury, and the design was abandoned for the present. The corpse, left to itself, was washed into the larboard scuppers, where it still lay at the time of which I speak, floundering about with the furious lurches of the brig. Having arranged our plan, we set about putting it into execution as speedily as possible. Peters went upon deck, and, as he had anticipated, was immediately accosted by Allen, who appeared to be stationed more as a watch upon the forecastle than for any other purpose. The fate of this villain, however, was speedily and silently decided, for Peters, approaching him in a careless manner as if about to address him, seized him by the throat, and before he could utter a single cry, tossed him over the bulwarks. He then called to us, and we came up. Our first precaution was to look about for something with which to arm ourselves, and in doing this we had to proceed with great care, for it was impossible to stand on the deck an instant without holding fast, and violent seas broke over the vessel at every plunge forward. It was indispensable, too, that we should be quick in our operations, for every minute we expected the mate to be up to set the pumps going, as it was evident the brig must be taking in water very fast. After searching about for some time, we could find nothing more fit for our purpose than the two pump handles, one of which Augustus took, and I the other. Having secured these, we stripped off the shirt of the corpse and dropped the body overboard. Peters and myself went below, leaving Augustus to watch upon deck, where he took the station just where Alan had been placed, and, with his back to the cabin companionway, so that, if any of the mate's gang should come up, he might suppose it was the watch. As soon as I got below, I commenced disguising myself so as to represent the corpse of Rogers. The shirt which we had taken from the body aided us very much, for it was of a singular form and character, and easily recognizable, a kind of smock, which the deceased wore over his other clothing. It was a blue stockinette, with large white stripes running across. Having put this on, 
I proceeded to equip myself with a false stomach in imitation of the horrible deformity of the swollen corpse. This was soon effected by means of stuffing with some bedclothes. I then gave the same appearance to my hands by drawing on a pair of white woolen mittens and filling them in with any kind of rags that offered themselves. Peters then arranged my face, first rubbing it well over with white chalk and afterwards blotching it with blood, which he took from a cut in his finger. The streak across the eye was not forgotten and presented a most shocking appearance. End of section 7. Recording by Todd. LibriVox.org Recording by Gabby Cowan The Works of Edgar Allan Poe Raven Edition, Volume 3 by Edgar Allan Poe Narrative of A. Gordon Pym Chapter 8 As I viewed myself in a fragment of looking-glass which hung up in the cabin, and by the dim light of a kind of battle lantern, I was so impressed with a sense of vague awe at my appearance, and at the recollection of the terrific reality which I was thus representing, that I was seized with a violent tremor, and could scarcely summon resolution to go on with my part. It was necessary, however, to act with decision, and Peters and myself went upon deck. We there found everything safe, and, keeping close to the bulwarks, the three of us crept to the cabin companionway. It was only partially closed, precautions having been taken to prevent its being suddenly pushed to from without, by means of placing billets of wood on the upper step so as to interfere with the shutting. We found no difficulty in getting a full view of the interior of the cabin through the cracks where the hinges were placed. It now proved to have been very fortunate for us that we had not attempted to take them by surprise, for they were evidently on the alert. Only one was asleep, and he lying just at the foot of the companion ladder, with a musket by his side. The rest were seated on several mattresses which had been taken from the birds and thrown on the floor. They were engaged in earnest conversation, and although they had been carousing, as appeared from two empty jugs with some thin tumblers which lay about, they were not as much intoxicated as usual. All had knives, one or two of them pistols, and a great many muskets were lying in a berth close at hand. We listened to their conversation for some time before we could make up our minds how to act, having as yet resolved on nothing determinate except that we would attempt to paralyze their exertions when we should attack them by means of the apparition of Rogers. They were discussing their piratical plans, in which all we could hear distinctly was that they would unite with the crew of a schooner, Hornet, and if possible get the schooner herself into their possession preparatory to some attempt on a large scale, the particulars of which could not be made out by either of us. One of the men spoke of Peters, 
when the mate replied to him in a low voice which could not be distinguished and afterward added more loudly that he could not understand his being so much forward with the captain's brat in the forecastle and he thought the sooner both of them were overboard the better to this no answer was made but we could easily perceive that the hint was well received by the whole party and more particularly by jones at this period i was excessively agitated the more so as i could see that neither augustus nor peters could determine how to act i made up my mind however to save my life as dearly as possible and not to suffer myself to be overcome by any feelings of trepidation the tremendous noise made by the roaring of the wind in the rigging and the washing of the sea over the deck prevented us from hearing what was said except during momentary lulls in one of these we all distinctly heard the mate tell one of the men to go forward have an eye upon them for he wanted no such secret doings on board the brig it was well for us that the pitching of the vessel at this moment was so violent as to prevent disorder from being carried into instant execution the cook got up from his mattress to go for us when a tremendous lurch which i thought would carry away the masts threw him headlong against one of the larboard stateroom doors bursting it open and creating a good deal of other confusion luckily neither of our party was thrown from his position and we had time to make a precipitate retreat to the forecastle and arranged a hurried plan of action before the messenger made his appearance or rather before he put his head out of the companion hatch for he did not come on deck from this station he could not notice the absence of allen and he accordingly bowled out as if to him repeating the orders of the mate peters cried out ay ay in a disguised voice and the cook immediately went below without entertaining a suspicion that all was not right my two companions now proceeded boldly aft and down into the cabin peters closing the door after him in the same manner he had found it the mate received them with feigned cordiality and told augustus that since he had behaved himself so well of late he might take up his quarters in the cabin and be one of them for the future he then poured him out a tumbler half full of rum and made him drink it all this i saw and heard for i followed my friends to the cabin as soon as the door was shut and took up my old point of observation i had brought with me the two pump handles one of which i secured near the companionway to be ready for use when required i now steadied myself as well as possible so as to have a good view of all what was passing within and endeavored to nerve myself to the task of descending among the mutineers when peters should make the signal to me as agreed upon 
Presently he contrived to turn the conversation upon the bloody deeds of the mutiny, and by degrees led the men to talk of the thousand superstitions which are so universally current among seamen. I could not make out all that was said, but I could plainly see the effects of the conversation in the countenance of those present. The mate was evidently much agitated, and presently, when someone mentioned the terrific appearance of Roger's corpse, I thought he was upon the point of swooning. Peters now asked him if he did not think it would be better to have the body thrown overboard at once, as it was too horrible a sight to see it floundering about in the scuppers. At this, the villain absolutely gasped for breath and turned his head slowly round upon his companions, as if imploring someone to go up and perform the task. No one, however, stirred, as it was quite evident that the whole party were wound up to the highest pitch of nervous excitement. Peters now made me the signal. I immediately threw open the door of the companionway, and descending, without uttering a syllable, stood erect in the midst of the party. The intense effect produced by this sudden apparition is not at all to be wondered at when the various circumstances are taken into consideration. Usually, in cases of a similar nature, there is left in the mind of the spectator some glimmering of doubt as to the reality of the vision before his eyes. A degree of hope, however feeble, that he is the victim of chicanery, and that the apparition is not actually a visitant from the old world of shadows. It is not too much to say that such remnants of doubt have been at the bottom of almost every such visitation, and that the appalling horror which has sometimes been brought about is to be attributed even in the cases most in point, and where most suffering has been experienced, more to a kind of anticipative horror, lest the apparition might possibly be real, than to an unwavering belief in its reality. But in the present instance, it will be seen immediately that in the minds of the mutineers there was not even the shadow of a basis upon which to rest a doubt that the apparition of Rogers was indeed a revivification of his disgusting corpse, or at least its spiritual image. The isolated situation of the brig with its entire inaccessibility on account of the gale, confined the apparently possible means of deception within such narrow and definite limits, that they must have thought themselves enabled to survey them all at a glance. They had now been at sea twenty-four days, without holding more than a speaking communication with any vessel, whatever. The whole of the crew, too, at least all of whom they had the most remote reason for suspecting to be on board, were assembled in the cabin with the exception of Allen, the watch, and his gigantic stature, he was six feet six inches high, 
was too familiar in their eyes to permit the notion that he was the apparition before them to enter their minds even for an instant. Add to these considerations the awe-inspiring nature of the tempest, and that of the conversation brought about by Peters, the deep impression which the loathsomeness of the actual corpse had made in the morning upon the imaginations of the men, the excellence of the imitation in my person, and the uncertain and wavering light in which they beheld me, as the glare of the cabin lantern, swinging violently to and from, fell dubiously and fitfully upon my figure. And there will be no reason to wonder that the deception had even more than the entire effect which we had anticipated. The mate sprang up from the mattress on which he was lying, and, without uttering a syllable, fell back, stone dead, upon the cabin floor, and was hurled to the leeward like a log by a heavy roll of the rig. Of the remaining seven, there were but three who had at first any degree of presence of mind. The four others sat for some time rooted apparently to the floor. The most pitiable objects of horror and utter despair my eyes ever encountered. The only opposition we experienced at all was from the cook, John Hunt, and Richard Parker, but they made but a feeble and irresolute defense. The two former were shot instantly by Peters, and I felled Parker with a blow on the head from the pump handle which I had brought with me. In the meantime, Augustus seized one of the muskets lying on the floor and shot another mutineer Wilson through the breast. There were now but three remaining, but by this time they had become aroused from their lethargy and perhaps began to see that a deception had been practiced upon them, for they fought with great resolution and fury, and for the immense muscular strength of Peters might have ultimately got the better of us. These three men were Jones, Riley, and Absalom Hicks. Jones had thrown Augustus to the floor, stabbed him in several places along the right arm, and would no doubt have soon dispatched him, as neither Peters nor myself could immediately get rid of our antagonists had it not been for the timely aid of a friend, upon whose assistance we surely had never depended. This friend was no other than Tiger. With a low growl, he bounded into the cabin at the most critical moment for Augustus, and throwing himself upon Jones, pinned him to the floor in an instant. My friend, however, was now too much injured to render us any aid whatever and I was so encumbered with my disguise that I could do but little. The dog would not leave his hold upon the throat of Jones. Peters, nevertheless, was far more than a match for the two men who remained, and would no doubt have dispatched them sooner had it not been for the narrow space in which he had to act, and the tremendous lurches of the vessel. Presently he was enabled to get hold of a heavy stool, several of which lay about the floor. With this he beat out the brains of Greeley, 
as he was in the act of discharging a musket at me, and immediately afterward a roll of the brig throwing him in contact with Hicks. He seized him by the throat, and, by dint of sheer strength, strangled him instantaneously. Thus, in far less time than I have taken to tell it, we found ourselves masters of the brig. The only person of our opponents who was left alive was Richard Parker. This man, it will be remembered, I had knocked down with a blow from the pump handle at the commencement of the attack. He now lay motionless by the door of the shattered stateroom, but upon Peter's touching him with his foot, he spoke and entreated for mercy. His head was only slightly cut and otherwise he had received no injury, having been merely stunned by the blow. He now got up, and, for the present, we secured his hands behind his back. The dog was still growling over Jones, but upon examination we found him completely dead, the blood issuing in a stream from a deep wound in the throat, inflicted, no doubt, by the sharp teeth of the animal. It was now about one o'clock in the morning, and the wind was still blowing tremendously. The brig evidently labored much more than usual, and it became absolutely necessary that something should be done with a view of easing her in some measure. At almost every roll to leeward, she shipped a sea, several of which came partially down into the cabin during our scuffle the hatchway having been left open by myself when I descended. The entire range of bulwarks to larboard had been swept away, as well as the caboose, together with the jolly boat, from the counter. The creaking and working of the mainmast, too, gave indication that it was nearly sprung. To make room for more stowage in the afterhold, the heel of this mast had been stepped between decks, a very reprehensible practice occasionally resorted to by ignorant shipbuilders, so that it was imminent danger of working from its step. But to crown all our difficulties, we plumbed the well and found no less than seven feet of water. Leaving the bodies of the crew lying in the cabin, we got to work immediately at the pumps, Parker, of course, being set at liberty to assist us in the labor. Augustus' arm was bound up as well as we could effect it, and he did what he could, but that was not much. However, we found that we could just manage to keep the leak from gaining upon us by having one pump constantly going. As there were only four of us, this was severe labor but we endeavored to keep up our spirits and looked anxiously for daybreak when we hoped to lighten the brig by cutting away the mainmast. In this manner we passed a night of terrible anxiety and fatigue, and when the day at length broke, the gale had neither abated in the least nor were there any signs of its abating. We now dragged the bodies on deck and threw them overboard. Our next care was to get rid of the mainmast. The necessary preparations having been made, 
Peters cut away the mast, having found access in the cabin, while the rest of us stood by the stays and land yards. As the brig gave a tremendous lee lurch, the word was given to cut away the weather land yards, which being done, the whole mass of wood and rigging plunged into the sea, clear of the brig and without doing any material injury. We now found that the vessel did not labor quite as much as before, but our situation was still exceedingly precarious, and in spite of the utmost exertions, we could not gain upon the leak without the aid of both pumps. The little assistance which Augustus could render us was not really of any importance. To add to our distress, a heavy sea, striking the brig to the windward, threw her off several points from the wind, and before she could regain her position, another broke completely over her, and hurled her full upon her beam ends. The ballast now shifted in a mass to leeward. The stowage had been knocking about perfectly at random for some time, and for a few moments we thought nothing could save us from capsizing. Presently, however, we partially righted, but the ballast still retaining its place to larboard. We lay so much along that it was useless to think of working the pumps, which indeed we could not have done much longer, in any case, as our hands were entirely raw with the excessive labor we had undergone, and were bleeding in the most horrible manner. Contrary to Parker's advice, we now proceeded to cut away the foremast and at length accomplished it after much difficulty, owing to the position in which we lay. In going overboard, the wreck took with it the bowsprit and left us a complete hulk. So far, we had had reason to rejoice in the escape of our longboat, which had received no damage from any of the huge seas which had come on board. But we had not long to congratulate ourselves, for the foremast having gone, and of course the foresail with it, by which the brig had been steadied, every sea now made a complete breach over us, and in five minutes our deck was swept from stern to stern. The long boat and starboard bulwarks torn off, and even the windlass shattered into fragments. It was indeed hardly possible for us to be in a more pitiable condition. At noon there seemed to be some slight appearance of the gales abating, but in this we were sadly disappointed, for it only lulled for a few minutes, to blow with redoubled fury. About four in the afternoon it was utterly impossible to stand up against the violence of the blast, and as the night closed in upon us, I had not a shadow of hope that the vessel would hold together until morning. By midnight we had settled very deep in the water, which was now up to the orlock deck. The rudder went soon afterward, the sea which tore it away lifting the after portion of the brig entirely from the water, against which she thumped in her descent with such a concussion as would be occasioned by going ashore. We had all calculated that the rudder would hold its own to the last, 
as it was unusually strong being rigged as i have never seen one rigged either before or since down its main timber there ran a succession of stout iron hooks and others in the same manner down the stern post through these hooks there extended a very thick wrought iron rod the rudder being thus held to the stern post and swinging freely on the rod the tremendous force of the sea which tore it off may be estimated by the fact that the hooks in the stern post which ran entirely through it being clinched on the inside were drawn every one of them completely out of the solid wood we had scarcely time to draw breath after the violence of this shock when one of the most tremendous waves i had then ever known broke right on board of us sweeping the companionway clear off bursting in the hatchways and filling every inch of the vessel with water End of section 8 Recording by Gaby Cowan, Kingston, Ontario, Canada The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3 By Edgar Allan Poe A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 9 Luckily, just before night, all four of us had lashed ourselves firmly to the fragments of the windlass, lying in this manner as flat upon the deck as possible. This precaution alone saved us from destruction. As it was, we were all more or less stunned by the immense weight of water which tumbled upon us, and which did not roll from above us until we were nearly exhausted. As soon as I could recover breath, I called aloud to my companions. Augustus alone replied, saying, It is all over with us, and may God have mercy upon our souls. By and by, both the others were enabled to speak when they exhorted us to take courage, as there was still hope, it being impossible, from the nature of the cargo, that the brig could go down, and there being every chance that the gale would blow over by the morning. These words inspired me with new life, for, strange as it may seem, although it was obvious that a vessel with a cargo of empty oil casks would not sink, I had been hitherto so confused in mind as to overlook this consideration altogether, and the danger which I had for some time regarded as the most eminent was that of foundering. As hope revived within me, I made use of every opportunity to strengthen the lashings which held me to the remains of the windlass, and, in this occupation, I soon discovered that my companions were also busy. The night was as dark as it could possibly be, and the horrible shrieking din and confusion which surrounded us it is useless to attempt describing. Our deck lay level with the sea, or, rather we were encircled with a towering ridge of foam, a portion of which swept over us every instant. It is not too much to say that our heads were not fairly out of the water more than one second in three. Although we lay close together, no one of us could see the other, or indeed any portion of the brig itself, upon which we were so temptuously hurled about. At intervals we called one to the other, thus endeavoring to keep alive hope, and render consolation and encouragement to such of us as stood most in need of it. The feeble condition of Augustus made him an object of solicitude with us all, and as, from the lacerated condition of his right arm, it must have been impossible for him to secure his lashings with any degree of firmness. We were in momentary expectations of finding that he had gone overboard. Yet, to render him aid was the thing altogether out of the question. Fortunately, his station was more secure than that of any of the rest of us, for the upper part of his body lying just beneath a portion of the shattered windlass, the seas, when they tumbled in upon him, were greatly broken in their violence. 
in any other situation than this, into which he must have been accidentally thrown after having lashed himself in a very exposed spot, he must inevitably have perished before morning. Owing to the brig's lying so much along, we were all less liable to be washed off than otherwise would have been the case. The heel, as I have before stated, was to larboard, about one half of the deck being constantly under water. The seas, therefore, which struck us to starboard were much broken by the vessel's side, only reaching us in fragments as we lay flat on our faces, while those which came from larboard, being what are called backwater seas, and obtaining little hold upon us in account of our posture, had not sufficient force to drag us from our fastenings. In this frightful situation, we lay until the day broke so as to show us more fully the horrors which surrounded us. The brig was a mere log, rolling about at the mercy of every wave. The gale was upon the increase, if anything, blowing indeed a complete hurricane, and there appeared to us no earthly prospect of deliverance. For several hours we held on in silence, expecting every moment that our lashings would either give way, that the remains of the windlass would go by the board, or that some of the huge seas which roared in every direction about us and above us would drive the hulk so far under the water that we should be drowned before it could regain the surface. By the mercy of God, however, we were preserved from these eminent dangers, and about midday were cheered by the light of the blessed sun. Shortly afterwards, we could perceive a sensible diminution in the force of the wind, when, now for the first time since the latter part of the evening before, Augustus spoke, asking Peters, who lay closest to him, if he thought there was any possibility of our being saved. As no reply was at first made to this question, we all concluded that the hybrid had been drowned where he lay, but, presently, to our great joy, he spoke, though very feebly, saying that he was in great pain, being so cut by the tightness of his lashings across the stomach, that he must either find means of loosening them, or perish, as it was impossible that he could endure his misery much longer. This occasioned us great distress, as it was altogether useless to think of aiding him in any manner while the sea continued washing over us as it did. We exhorted him to bear his sufferings with fortitude, and promised to seize the first opportunity which should offer itself to relieve him. He replied that it would soon be too late, that it would all be over with him before we could help him, and then, after moaning for some minutes, lay silent, when we concluded that he had perished. As the evening drew on, the sea had fallen so much that scarcely more than one wave broke over the hulk from windward in the course of five minutes, and the wind had abated a great deal, although still blowing a severe gale. I had not heard any of my companions speak for hours, and now called to Augustus. He replied, although very feebly, so that I could not distinguish what he said. I then spoke to Peters, and to Parker, neither of whom returned any answer. Shortly after this period, I fell into a state of partial insensibility, during which the most pleasing images floated in my imagination, such as green trees, waving meadows of ripe grain, processions of dancing girls, troops of cavalry, and other fantasies. I now remember that, in all which passed before my mind's eye, motion was a predominant idea. Thus, I never fancied any stationary object, such as a house, a mountain, or anything of that kind, but windmills, ships, large birds, balloons, people on horseback, carriages driving furiously, and similar moving objects presenting themselves in endless succession. When I recovered from this state, the sun was, as near as I could guess, an hour high. I had the greatest difficulty in bringing to recollection the various circumstances connected with my situation, and for some time remained firmly convinced that I was still in the hold of the brig near the box, and that the body of Parker was that of Tiger. When I at length completely came to my senses, I found that the wind blew no more than a moderate breeze, and that the sea was comparatively calm, so much so that it only washed over the brig amidships. My left arm had broken loose from its lashings, and was much cut about the elbow, 
My right was entirely benumbed, and the hand and wrist swollen prodigiously by the pressure of the rope, which had worked from the shoulder downward. I was also in great pain from another rope which went about my waist, and had been drawn to an insufferable degree of tightness. Looking round upon my companions, I saw that Peter still lived, although a thick line was pulled so forcibly around his loins as to give him the appearance of being cut nearly in two. As I stirred, he made a feeble motion to me with his hand, pointing to the rope. Augustus gave no indication of life whatever, and was bent nearly double across a splinter of the windlass. Parker spoke to me when he saw me moving, and asked me if I had not sufficient strength to release him from his situation, saying that if I would summon up what spirits I could, and contrive to untie him, we might yet save our lives, but that otherwise we must all perish. I told him to take courage, and I would endeavor to free him. Feeling in my pantaloon's pocket, I got hold of my penknife, and after several ineffectual attempts, at length succeeded in opening it. I then, with my left hand, managed to free my right from its fastenings, and afterwards cut the other ropes which held me. Upon attempting, however, to move from my position, I found that my legs failed me altogether, and that I could not get up. Neither could I move my right arm in any direction. Upon mentioning this to Parker, he advised me to lie quiet for a few minutes, holding to the windlass with my left hand, so as to allow time for the blood to circulate. Doing this, the numbness presently began to die away, so that I could move first one of my legs, and then the other, and shortly afterwards I regained the partial use of my right arm. I now crawled with great caution towards Parker, without getting on my legs, and soon cut loose all the lashings about him, when, after a short delay, he also recovered the partial use of his limbs. We now lost no time in getting loose the rope from Peter's. It had cut a deep gash through the waistband of his woolen pantaloons, and through two shirts, and made its way into his groin, from which the blood flowed out copiously as he removed the cordage. No sooner had we removed it, however, than he spoke, and seemed to experience instant relief, being able to move with much greater ease than either Parker or myself. This was no doubt owing to the discharge of blood. We had little hopes that Augustus would recover, as he evinced no signs of life, but, upon getting to him, we discovered that he had merely swooned from the loss of blood, the bandages we had placed around his wounded arm having been torn off by the water, none of the ropes which held with the windlass were drawn sufficiently tight to occasion his death. Having released him from the fastenings, and got him clear of the broken wood about the windlass, we secured him in a dry place to windward, with his head somewhat lower than his body, and all three of us busied ourselves in chafing his limbs. In about half an hour he came to himself, although it was not until the next morning that he gave signs of recognizing any of us, or had sufficient strength to speak. By the time we had thus got clear of our lashings, it was quite dark, and it began to cloud up, so that we were again in the greatest agony, lest it should come on to blow hard, in which event nothing could have saved us from perishing, exhausted as we were. By good fortune, it continued very moderate during the night, the sea subsiding every minute, which gave us great hopes of ultimate preservation. A gentle breeze still blew from the northwest, but the weather was not at all cold. Augustus was lashed carefully to windward in such a manner as to prevent him from slipping overboard with the rolls of the vessel, as he was still too weak to hold on at all. For ourselves, there was no such necessity. We sat close together, supporting each other with the aid of the broken ropes around the windlass, and devising methods of escape from our frightful situation. We derived much comfort for taking off our clothes and wringing the water from them. When we put them on after this, they felt remarkably warm and pleasant, and served to invigorate us in no little degree. We helped Augustus off with his, and wrung them for him, when he experienced the same comfort. Our chief sufferings were now those of hunger and thirst, and when we looked forward to the means of relief in this respect, our hearts sank within us, and we were induced to regret that we had escaped the less dreadful perils of the sea. We endeavored, however, to console ourselves with the hope of being speedily picked up by some vessel, and encouraged each other to bear with fortitude the evils that might happen. The morning of the fourteenth at length dawned, and the weather still continued clear and pleasant. 
with a steady but very light breeze from the northwest. The sea was now quite smooth, and as, from some cause which we could not determine, the brig did not lie so much along as she had done before, the deck was comparatively dry, and we could move about with freedom. We had now been better than three entire days and nights without either food or drink, and it became absolutely necessary that we should make an attempt to get up something from below. As the brig was completely full of water, we went to this work despondently, and with what little expectation of being able to obtain anything. We made a kind of drag by driving some nails which we broke out from the remnants of the companion hatchway into two pieces of wood. Tying those across each other and fastening them to the end of a rope, we threw them into the cabin and dragged them to and fro in the faint hope of thus being able to entangle some article which might be of use to us for food, or which might at least render us assistance in getting it. We spent the greater part of the morning in this labor without effect, fishing up nothing more than a few bedclothes, which were readily caught on the nails. Indeed, our contrivance was so very clumsy that any greater success was hardly to be anticipated. We now tried the forecastle, but equally in vain, and were upon the brink of despair when Peters proposed that we should fasten a rope to his body and let him make an attempt to get up something by diving into the cabin. This proposition we hailed with all the delight which reviving hope could inspire. He proceeded immediately to strip off his clothes with the exception of his pantaloons, and a strong rope was then carefully placed about his middle, being brought up over his shoulders in such a manner that there was no possibility of it slipping. The undertaking was one of great difficulty and danger, for, as we could hardly expect to find much, if any, provision in the cabin itself, it was necessary that the diver, after letting himself down, should make a turn to the right and proceed under water a distance of ten or twelve feet in a narrow passage to the storeroom, and return without drawing breath. Everything being ready, Peters now descended in the cabin, going down the companion ladder till the water reached his chin. He then plunged in, head first, and turned to the right as he plunged, and endeavoring to make his way to the storeroom. In this first attempt, however, he was altogether unsuccessful. In less than half a minute after his going down, we felt the rope jerked violently, the signal we had agreed upon when he desired to be drawn up. We accordingly drew him up instantly, but so incautiously as to bruise him badly against the ladder. He had brought nothing with him, and had been unable to penetrate more than a very little way into the passage, owing to the constant exertions he found it necessary to make in order to keep himself from floating up against the deck. Upon getting out, he was very much exhausted, and had to rest full fifteen minutes before he could again venture to descend. The second attempt met with even worse success, for he remained so long under water without giving the signal that, becoming alarmed for his safety, we drew him out without it, and found that he was almost at the last gasp, having, as he said, repeatedly jerked the rope without our feeling it. This was probably owing to a portion of it having become entangled in the balustrade at the foot of the ladder. This balustrade was, indeed, so much in the way that we determined to remove it, if possible, before proceeding with our design. As we had no means of getting it away except by main force, we all descended into the water as far as we could on the ladder, and giving a pull against it with our united strength, succeeded in breaking it down. The third attempt was equally unsuccessful with the first two, and it now became evident that nothing could be done in this manner without the aid of some weight with which the diver might steady himself and keep to the floor of the cabin while making a search. For a long time we looked about in vain for something which might answer this purpose, but at length, to our great joy, we discovered one of the weather forechains so loose that we had not the least difficulty in wrenching it off. Having fastened this securely to one of his ankles, Peters now made his fourth descent into the cabin, and this time succeeded in making his way to the door of the steward's room. To his inexpressible grief, however, he found it locked, and was obliged to return without effecting an entrance, as, with the greatest exertion, he could remain under water not more, at the utmost extent, than a single minute. Our affairs now looked gloomy indeed and neither Augustus nor myself could refrain from bursting into tears, as we thought of the host of difficulties which encompassed us, and the slight probability which existed of our finally making an escape.
but this weakness was not of long duration. Throwing ourselves on our knees to God, we implored his aid in the many dangers which beset us, and arose with renewed hope and vigor to think what could yet be done by mortal means towards accomplishing our deliverance. End of section 9. Recording by Todd. Recording by Stephanie Heinrichs. The works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Narratives of A. Gordon Pym. Chapter 10. Shortly afterward, an incident occurred, which I am induced to look upon as more intensely productive of emotion, as far more replete with the extremes, first of delight and then of horror, than even any of the thousand chances which afterward befell me in nine long years, crowded with events of the most startling, and in many cases, of the most unconceived and unconceivable character. We were lying on the deck near the companionway, and debating the possibility of yet making our way into the storeroom, when, looking toward Augustus, who lay fronting myself, I perceived that he had become all at once deadly pale, and that his lips were quivering in the most singular and unaccountable manner. Greatly alarmed, I spoke to him, but he made me no reply, and I was beginning to think that he was suddenly taken ill when I took notice of his eyes, which were glaring, apparently, at some object behind me. I turned my head, and shall never forget the ecstatic joy which thrilled through every particle of my frame, when I perceived a large brick bearing down upon us, and not more than a couple of miles off. I sprung to my feet as if a musket bullet had suddenly struck me to the heart, and stretching out my arms in the direction of the vessel, stood in this manner motionless, and unable to articulate a syllable. Peters and Parker were equally affected, although in different ways. The former danced about the deck like a madman, uttering the most extravagant rodomontades, intermingled with howls and imprecations, while the latter burst into tears, and continued for many minutes weeping like a child. The vessel inside was a large hermaphrodite brig, of a Dutch build, and painted black, with a tawdry gilt figurehead. She had evidently seen a good deal of rough weather, and, we supposed, had suffered much in the gale which had proved so disastrous to ourselves, for her foretop mast was gone, and some of her starboard bulwarks. When we first saw her she was, as I have already said, about two miles off and to windward, bearing down upon us. The breeze was very gentle, and what astonished us chiefly was that she had no other sails set than her foremast and mainsail with a flying jib. Of course she came down but slowly, and our impatience amounted nearly to frenzy. The awkward manner in which she steered too was remarked by all of us even excited as we were. She yawed about so considerably that once or twice we thought it impossible she could see us, or imagined that, having seen us and discovered no person on board, she was about to tack and make off in another direction. Upon each of these occasions we screamed and shouted at the top of our voices when the stranger would appear to change for a moment her intention and again hold on toward us the singular conduct being repeated two or three times, so that at last we could think of no other manner of accounting for it than by supposing the helmsman to be in liquor. No person was seen upon her decks until she arrived within about a quarter of a mile of us. 
We then saw three seamen, whom by their dress we took to be Hollanders. Two of these were lying on some old sails near the forecastle, and the third, who appeared to be looking at us with great curiosity, was leaning over the starboard bow near the bowsprit. This last was a stout and tall man with a very dark skin. He seemed by his manner to be encouraging us to have patience, nodding to us in a cheerful, although rather odd way, and smiling constantly so as to display a set of the most brilliantly white teeth. As his vessel drew nearer, we saw a red flannel cap which he had on fall from his head into the water, but of this he took little or no notice, continuing his odd smiles and gesticulations. I relate these things and circumstances minutely, and I relate them, it must be understood, precisely as they appeared to us. The brig came on slowly, and now more steadily than before, and, I cannot speak calmly of this event, our hearts leaped up wildly within us, and we poured out our whole souls in shouts and thanksgiving to God for the complete, unexpected and glorious deliverance that was so palpably at hand. Of a sudden, and all at once, there came wafted over the ocean from the strange vessel, which was now close upon us, a smell, a stench, such as the whole world has no name for, no conception of hellish, utterly suffocating, insufferable, inconceivable. I gasped for breath, and turning to my companions perceived that they were paler than marble. But we had now no time left for question or surmise. The brig was within fifty feet of us, and it seemed to be her intention to run under our counter that we might board her without putting out a boat. We rushed aft when suddenly a wide yaw threw her off full five or six points from the course she had been running, and as she passed under our stern at the distance of about twenty feet, we had a full view of her decks. Shall I ever forget the triple horror of that spectacle? Twenty-five or thirty human bodies, among whom were several females, lay scattered about between the counter and the galley in the last and most loathsome state of putrefaction. We plainly saw that not a soul lived in that fated vessel, yet we could not help shouting to the dead for help. Yes, long and loudly did we beg, in the agony of the moment, that those silent and disgusting images would stay for us, would not abandon us to become like them, would receive us among their goodly company. We were raving with horror and despair, thoroughly mad through the anguish of our grievous disappointment. As our first loud yell of terror broke forth, it was replied to by something from near the bowsprit of the stranger, so closely resembling the scream of a human voice that the nicest ear might have been startled and deceived. At this instant another sudden yaw brought the region of the forecastle for a moment into view, and we beheld at once the origin of the sound. We saw the tall, stout figure still leaning on the bulwark, and still nodding his head to and fro, but his face was now turned from us so that we could not behold it. His arms were extended over the rail, and the palms of his hands fell outward. His knees were lodged upon a stout rope, tightly stretched and reaching from the heel of the bowsprit to a cat head. On his back, from which a portion of the shirt had been torn, 
Leaving it bare, there sat a huge seagull, busily gorging itself with a horrible flesh, its bill and talons deep buried, and its white plumage spattered all over with blood. As the brig moved farther round so as to bring us close in view, the bird with much apparent difficulty drew out its crimsoned head, and after eyeing us for a moment as if stupefied, arose lazily from the body upon which it had been feasting, and flying directly above our deck, hovered there a while with a portion of clotted and liver-like substance in its beak. The horrid morsel dropped at length with a sullen splash immediately at the feet of Parker. May God forgive me, but now, for the first time, there flashed through my mind a thought, a thought which I will not mention, and I felt myself making a step toward the ensanguined spot. I looked upward, and the eyes of Augustus met my own with a degree of intense and eager meaning which immediately brought me to my senses. I sprang forward quickly, and with a deep shudder threw the frightful thing into the sea. The body from which it had been taken, resting as it did upon the rope, had been easily swayed to and fro by the exertions of the carnivorous bird, and it was this motion which had at first impressed us with the belief of its being alive. As the gull relieved it of its weight, it swung round and fell partially over, so that the face was fully discovered. Never, surely, was any object so terribly full of awe. The eyes were gone, and the whole flesh around the mouth, leaving the teeth utterly naked. This, then, was the smile which had cheered us on to hope, this the... but I forbear. The brig, as I have already told, passed under our stern, and made its way slowly but steadily to leeward. With her, and with her terrible crew, went all our gay visions of deliverance and joy. Deliberately, as she went by, we might possibly have found means of boarding her, had not our sudden disappointment and the appalling nature of the discovery which accompanied it laid entirely prostrate every active faculty of mind and body. We had seen and felt, but we could neither think nor act until, alas, too late. How much our intellects had been weakened by this incident may be estimated by the fact that when the vessel had proceeded so far that we could perceive no more than the half of her hull, the proposition was seriously entertained of attempting to overtake her by swimming. I have, since this period, vainly endeavored to obtain some clue to the hideous uncertainty which enveloped the fate of the stranger. Her build and general appearance, as I have before stated, led us to the belief that she was a Dutch trader and the dresses of the crew also sustained this opinion. We might have easily seen the name upon her stern, and indeed taken other observations which would have guided us in making out her character, but the intense excitement of the moment blinded us to everything of that nature. From the saffron-like hue of such of the corpses as were not entirely decayed, we concluded that the whole of her company had perished by the yellow fever or some other virulent disease of the same fearful kind. If such were the case, and I know not what else to imagine, 
death, to judge from the positions of the bodies, must have come upon them in a manner awfully sudden and overwhelming, in a way totally distinct from that which generally characterizes even the most deadly pestilences with which mankind are acquainted. It is possible, indeed, that poison, accidentally introduced into some of their sea stores, may have brought about the disaster, or that the eating of some unknown venomous species of fish, or other marine animal or oceanic bird, might have induced it. But it is utterly useless to form conjectures, where all is involved, and will, no doubt, remain forever involved in the most appalling and unfathomable mystery. End of section 10 Recording by Stephanie Heinrichs by Stephanie Heinrichs The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe Narrative of A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 11 We spent the remainder of the day in a condition of stupid lethargy, gazing after the retreating vessel until the darkness, hiding her from our sight, recalled us in some measure to our senses. The pangs of hunger and thirst then returned, absorbing all other cares and considerations. Nothing, however, could be done until the morning, and securing ourselves as well as possible, we endeavored to snatch a little repose. In this I succeeded beyond my expectations, sleeping until my companions, who had not been so fortunate, aroused me at daybreak to renew our attempts at getting up provisions from the hull. It was now a dead calm with a sea as smooth as have ever known it, the weather warm and pleasant. The brig was out of sight. We commenced our operations by wrenching off, with some trouble, another of the four chains, and having fastened both to Peter's feet, he again made an endeavor to reach the door of the storeroom, thinking it possible that he might be able to force it open, provided he could get at it in sufficient time, and this he hoped to do as the hull lay much more steadily than before. He succeeded very quickly in reaching the door when, loosening one of the chains from his ankle, he made every exertion to force the passage with it, but in vain, the framework of the room being far stronger than was anticipated. He was quite exhausted with his long stay under water, and it became absolutely necessary that some other one of us should take his place. For this service Parker immediately volunteered, but after making three ineffectual efforts found that he could never even succeed in getting near the door. The condition of Augustus's wounded arm rendered it useless for him to attempt going down, as he would be unable to force the room open should he reach it, and it accordingly now devolved upon me to exert myself for a common deliverance. Peters had left one of the chains in the passage, and I found upon plunging in that I had not sufficient balance to keep me firmly down. I determined therefore to attempt no more my first effort than merely to recover the other chain. In groping along the floor of the passage for this, I felt a hard substance which I immediately grasped, not having time to ascertain what it was, but returning and descending instantly to the surface. The prize proved to be a bottle, and our joy may be conceived when I say that it was found to be full of port wine. Giving thanks to God for this timely and cheering assistance, we immediately drew the cork with my penknife, and each taking a moderate sup, felt the most indescribable comfort from the warmth 
strength and spirits with which it inspired us. We then carefully recorked the bottle and, by means of a handkerchief, swung it in such a manner that there was no possibility of its getting broken. Having rested a while after this fortunate discovery, I again descended and now recovered the chain with which I instantly came up. I then fastened it on and went down for the third time, when I became fully satisfied that no exertions whatever in that situation would enable me to force open the door of the storeroom. I therefore returned in despair. There seemed now to be no longer any room for hope, and I could perceive in the countenances of my companions that they had made up their minds to perish. The wine had evidently produced in them a species of delirium, which perhaps I had been prevented from feeling by the immersion I had undergone since drinking it. They talked incoherently and about matters unconnected with our condition, Peters repeatedly asking me questions about Nantucket. Augustus, too, I remember, approached me with a serious air and requested me to lend him a pocket comb, as his hair was full of fish scales and he wished to get them out before going on shore. Parker appeared somewhat less affected and urged me to dive at random into the cabin and bring up any article which might come to hand. To this I consented and in the first attempt, after staying under a full minute, brought up a small leather trunk belonging to Captain Bernard. This was immediately opened in the faint hope that it might contain something to eat or drink. We found nothing, however, except a box of razors and two linen shirts. I now went down again and returned without any success. As my head came above water I heard a crash on deck, and upon getting up saw that my companions had ungratefully taken advantage of my absence to drink the remainder of the wine, having let the bottle fall in the endeavour to replace it before I saw them. I remonstrated with them on the heartlessness of their conduct when Augustus burst into tears. The other two endeavoured to laugh the matter off as a joke, but I hope never again to behold laughter of such a species. The distortion of countenance was absolutely frightful. Indeed it was apparent that the stimulus in the empty state of their stomachs had taken instant and violent effect, and that they were all exceedingly intoxicated. With great difficulty I prevailed upon them to lie down, when they fell very soon into a heavy slumber accompanied with loud stertorous breathing. I now found myself as it were alone in the brig, and my reflections, to be sure, were of the most fearful and gloomy nature. No prospect offered itself to my view but a lingering death by famine, or, at the best, by being overwhelmed in the first gale which should spring up, for in our present exhausted condition we could have no hope of living through another. The gnawing hunger which I now experienced was nearly insupportable, and I felt myself capable of going to any lengths in order to appease it. With my knife I cut off a small portion of the leather trunk and endeavoured to eat it, but found it utterly impossible to swallow a single morsel, although I fancied that some little alleviation of my suffering was obtained by chewing small pieces of it and spitting them out. Toward night my companions awoke one by one, each in an indescribable state of weakness and horror, brought on by the wine whose fumes had now evaporated. They shook as if with a violent ague, and uttered the most lamentable cries for water. Their condition affected me in the most lively degree, at the same time causing me to rejoice in the fortunate train of circumstances which had prevented me from indulging in the wine, 
and consequently from sharing their melancholy and most distressing sensations. Their conduct, however, gave me great uneasiness and alarm, for it was evident that, unless some favorable change took place, they could afford me no assistance in providing for a common safety. I had not yet abandoned all idea being able to get up something from below, but the attempt could not possibly be resumed until some one of them was sufficiently master of himself to aid me by holding the end of the rope while I went down. Parker appeared to be somewhat more in possession of his senses than the others, and I endeavored by every means in my power to rouse him. Thinking that a plunge in the sea water might have a beneficial effect, I contrived to fasten the end of a rope around his body, and then, leading him to the companionway, he remaining quite passive all the while, pushed him in and immediately drew him out. I had good reason to congratulate myself upon having made this experiment, for he appeared much revived and invigorated, and upon getting out asked me, in a rational manner, why I had so served him. Having explained my object, he expressed himself indebted to me, and said that he felt greatly better from the immersion, afterward conversing sensibly upon our situation. We then resolved to treat Augustus and Peters in the same way, which we immediately did, when they both experienced much benefit from the shock. This idea of sudden immersion had been suggested to me by reading in some medical work the good effect of the shower bath in a case where the patient was suffering from mania apartu. Finding that I could now trust my companions to hold the end of the rope, I again made three or four plunges into the cabin, although it was now quite dark, and a gentle but long swell from the northward rendered the hulk somewhat unsteady. In the course of these attempts I succeeded in bringing up two case-knives, a three-gallon jug, empty, and a blanket, but nothing which could serve us for food. I continued my efforts after getting these articles until I was completely exhausted, but brought up nothing else. During the night Parker and Peters occupied themselves by turns in the same manner, but nothing coming to hand, we now gave up this attempt in despair, concluding that we were exhausting ourselves in vain. We passed the remainder of this night in a state of the most intense mental and bodily anguish that can possibly be imagined. The morning of the sixteenth at length dawned, and we looked eagerly around the horizon for relief, but to no purpose. The sea was still smooth, with only a long swell from the northward as on yesterday. This was the sixth day since we had tasted either food or drink, with the exception of the bottle of port wine, it was clear that we could hold out but a very little while longer unless something could be obtained. I never saw nor wished to see again human beings so utterly emaciated as Peters and Augustus. Had I met them on shore in their present condition, I should not have had the slightest suspicion that I had ever beheld them. Their countenances were totally changed in character so that I could not bring myself to believe them really the same individuals with whom I had been in company but a few days before. Parker, although sadly reduced and so feeble that he could not raise his head from his bosom, was not so far gone as the other two. He suffered with great patience, making no complaint, and endeavoring to inspire us with hope in every manner he could devise. For myself, although at the commencement of the voyage I had been in bad health, and was at all times of a delicate constitution, I suffered less than any of us, being much less reduced in frame, and retaining my powers of mind in a surprising degree, while the rest were completely prostrated in intellect, 
and seem to be brought to species of second childhood, generally simpering in their expressions with idiotic smiles and uttering the most absurd platitudes. At intervals, however, they would appear to revive suddenly, as if inspired all at once with a consciousness of the condition, when they would spring upon their feet in a momentary flash of vigor, and speak for a short period of their prospects in a manner altogether rational, although full of the most intense despair. It is possible, however, that my companions may have entertained the same opinion of their own condition as I did of mine, and that I may have unwittingly been guilty of the same extravagances and imbecilities as themselves. This is a matter which cannot be determined. About noon Parker declared that he saw land of the larboard quarter, and it was with the utmost difficulty I could restrain him from plunging into the sea with the view of swimming toward it. Peters and Augustus took little notice of what he said, being apparently wrapped up in moody contemplation. Upon looking in the direction pointed out, I could not perceive the faintest appearance of the shore. Indeed, I was too well aware that we were far from any land to indulge in a hope of that nature. It was a long time, nevertheless, before I could convince Parker of his mistake. He then burst into a flood of tears, weeping like a child, with loud cries and sobs for two or three hours. When becoming exhausted, he fell asleep. Peters and Augustus now made several ineffectual efforts to swallow portions of the leather. I advised them to chew it and spit it out, but they were too excessively debilitated to be able to follow my advice. I continued to chew pieces of it at intervals, and found some relief from so doing. My chief distress was for water, and I was only prevented from taking a draught from the sea by remembering the horrible consequences which thus have resulted to others who were similarly situated with ourselves. The day wore on in this manner, when I suddenly discovered a sail to the eastward and on our larboard bow. She appeared to be a large ship and was coming nearly athwart us, being probably twelve or fifteen miles distant. None of my companions had as yet discovered her, and I forbore to tell them of her for the present, lest we might again be disappointed of relief. At length upon her getting nearer I saw distinctly that she was heading immediately for us, with her light sails filled. I could now contain myself no longer, and pointed her out to my fellow sufferers. They immediately sprang to their feet, again indulging in the most extravagant demonstrations of joy, weeping, laughing in an idiotic manner, jumping, stamping upon the deck, tearing their hair and praying and cursing by turns. I was so affected by their conduct, as well as by what I considered a sure prospect of deliverance, that I could not refrain from joining in with their madness, and gave way to the impulses of my gratitude and ecstasy by lying and rolling on the deck, clapping my hands, shouting and other similar acts, until I was suddenly called to my recollection, and once more to the extreme human misery and despair, by perceiving the ship all at once, with her stern fully presented toward us, and steering in a direction nearly opposite to that in which I had at first perceived her. It was some time before I could induce my poor companions to believe that the sad reverse in our prospects had actually taken place. They replied to all my assertions with a stare and a gesture, implying that they were not to be deceived by such misrepresentations. The conduct of Augustus most sensibly affected me. 
In spite of all I could say or do to the contrary, he persisted in saying that the ship was rapidly nearing us, and in making preparations to go on board of her. Some seaweed floating by the brig, he maintained that it was the ship's boat, and endeavoured to throw himself upon it, howling and shrieking in the most heart-rending manner, when I forcibly restrained him from thus casting himself into the sea. Having become in some degree pacified, we continued to watch the ship until we finally lost sight of her, the weather becoming hazy, with a light breeze bringing up. As soon as she was entirely gone, Parker turned suddenly toward me with an expression of countenance which made me shudder. There was about him an air of self-possession which I had not noticed in him until now, and before he opened his lips my heart told me what he would say. He proposed, in a few words, that one of us should die to preserve the existence of the others. End of section 11 Recording by Stephanie Heinrichs